Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. For me, the value of anthropology was learning how to look at the world through the eyes of people of different backgrounds and experiences and interests, people who are not like me. You know, one of the things I've found over the years is a lot of young copywriters in advertising make that rookie error of creating ads that talk to themselves. That's Brad W. Brinegar, chairman of McKinney, a creative media and technology agency with locations in Durham, Los Angeles, and New York. He was chairman and CEO from 2002 through 2018. He also serves as executive in residence for Duke University's Innovation and Entrepreneurship Initiative. He majored in anthropology at Dartmouth, where he rode on the varsity crew and was editor-in-chief of The Humor magazine, going on to earn a finance MBA from Columbia. Before joining McKinney, he spent two decades at global advertising giant Leo Burnett in Chicago, rising from trainee to CEO of Leo Burnett USA. McKinney's clients range from Netflix to Samsung, and Brad has for decades been a leading voice in the advertising industry. In 2016, he went on CNN to oppose North Carolina's House Bill 2, targeted at limiting the rights of the LGBTQ community ultimately signed into law by Governor Pat McCrory, which amended state law to preempt any anti-discrimination ordinances. Welcome to Artscoping, Brad. Oh, my pleasure, Max. I was uh, honored that you asked me to be uh, part of the gig. And I have to say, I love your logo. Well, that was done by my talented son, Chase Anderson, who has given up being a millennial in Park Slope and is now a millennial farmer off the coast of Washington State at an organic farm. So... <laughs> All is well. Speaking of matters personal, for full disclosure, I served at your feet at Dartmouth's Jack-O-Lantern magazine, rising no higher than the rank of associate editor. So I want to thank you for allowing me into your world. <laughs> really? I actually thought that you did become the editor. I used to say that I was the youngest one in the history of the Jacko, which was true, but it was hardly an honor or any reflection of talent. If you'll remember, the Vietnam War was winding down, and for some reason, humor had ceased to be funny, and no one else wanted the job. I do remember that we staged a sit-in at the Dartmouth Radical Union as <laughs> yeah. a form of protest. I had forgotten all about that. And do you remember the black tie Tupperware party that we staged? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say that Jack I mean, was the, probably my first introduction to the intersection of art and commerce, and it's probably a big part of how I ended up in advertising. Well, that was part of it, but you majored in anthropology, which set you apart from the many other Dartmouth students who majored in which investment bank training program to choose. So I'm curious <laughs> if there are any facets of anthropology that have informed your outlook on advertising. Yeah, there's, there's no question about that. For me, the value of anthropology was learning how to look at the world through the eyes of people of different backgrounds and experiences and interests, people who were not like me. You know, one of the things I've found over the years is a lot of young copywriters in advertising make that rookie error of creating ads that talk to themselves and really don't do enough to get inside the heads of the people they're trying to reach. And that doesn't just apply to the creative people either. You know, the funny thing about our business is that we really have to sell every idea twice, once to the client for approval and then onto the consumer sale. And as you can imagine, no two client organizations are the same. Being able to understand one client culture and how it works versus another and the people inside each of those cultures is pretty critical to getting the best possible work through the gauntlet. Cultural anthropology and, and really stepping back and developing some sense of empathy for people is a pretty important part of our business. 
And for some of your clients, the products or services you were promoting were narrower and some broader. Did the anthropological research lead you to think about categories of people in ways that an anthropologist would recognize, or had you long left that behind? No, I think, you know, we certainly didn't get academic with it, but we do a lot of segmentation work where we're trying to break down universal groups into smaller groups of people who have homogeneous attitudes and interests and behaviors. And we use a lot of anthropological techniques, you know, including going into people's homes and rooting through their closets and sitting down at dinner tables with them to, you know, just really try and immerse ourselves in their lives. You know, it's something that I personally didn't do as uh, somebody who came up with the account management side and ended up in the management of agencies, but it's certainly an important part of what we do as a business. I don't know if I ever told you this. My late mother worked at J. Walter Thompson for years and before that did market research in the field. So it's a world that I know of from afar, but I'd like your help with a market segment, which is the tens of millions of people who visit art museums. And I'd like you to help us all with some free advice because basically your experience and reputation management could be very helpful to museum directors and administrators and trustees around the country. You have worked with storied brands across virtually every sector. And since the pandemic shuttered art museums, they have been struggling back to life, but without big crowds, obviously, and without exhibitions and with declining contributions and declining membership. Now, they're charitable organizations. They're not theme parks. What questions should they be asking themselves in a bid for renewed post-pandemic relevance and post-George Floyd relevance? Art museums are a lot like restaurants. You know, we want to visit them and there's no substitute for the in-person experience of art in the same way that you can eat a meal at home, but the same meal in a restaurant is just a simply different experience. So and right not, now they're all outdoor dining. So you're suggesting outdoor museums? Brad, that's go. just not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm not totally convinced that it's about relevance as much as it is about the insurmountable and hopefully temporary barriers that we have to enjoying these experiences. I know the second that I can feel safe going back to a restaurant, uh, even though I've learned a lot about cooking over the last year, I'm going to be the first one in line to go back and have that restaurant experience. I'm guessing that in the face of so many other things looking for our attention and time, that museums are certainly always faced with the pressure of getting people in and participating. As to um, this distinction of charitable organization versus theme park, I suppose in some ways the good news for museum fundraising is that despite the horrors of the pandemic, the continued growth of the stock markets made a lot of people vastly wealthier and the change in administration seems likely to be less friendly to the arts. So I think you probably have to separate where you get your money versus where you get your attendance and how you stay relevant there. Um, And I really don't understand the relationship between your ability to drive charitable giving relative to museum attendance. But if those two things are interrelated, it's obviously a more challenging question. You know, it's up to museums who want mass audiences to create experiences with mass appeal. You know, we're lucky here Mm -hmm. in the Research Triangle area to have a a pretty terrific state-funded museum, the North Carolina Museum of Art. I know you know Larry Wheeler, who I think did a tremendous Mm -hmm. job of elevating great art. Well, creating a lot of very compelling and engaging consumer experiences around that art. You know, successor Valerie Hillings only had about a year to get her footing before COVID struck, so we really don't know where the museum's going to go from there. But I think the NCMA is a great example of being able to do things that are competitive with the alternatives we have for our attention 
Notwithstanding the interest in their being populated with visitors, I'm of the view that museums have, to their detriment, tried to portray themselves as pseudo-commercial attractions. And I think they need to, as you were hinting at, pluck the heartstrings of those who have done well in the stock market instead of betting on the turnstile, which has really never provided more than a small percentage of their revenue. And NCMA is free, I believe, still, is it not? Yeah, it is. It is. Can you cite any award-winning advertising campaigns that have relied on the empathy of consumers instead of claiming to solve a problem or fill a need? Yeah, I think all great advertising is actually built on customer empathy. And I can't think of any great campaigns that don't come from a real understanding of what makes people tick. It's a classic and overused example, but Nike is one of the greatest examples of this. They're not in the athletic apparel business. Most of the people who buy their clothes don't do much in the way of athletics. And they recognize that early on. They started out as a, a shoe seller, but you know they're really in the winning spirit business. And the whole idea of just do it and everything around the way they behave is much more about the brand and that connection to what motivates people than it is about the things they sell. They certainly do a lot of sales-oriented advertising and marketing efforts, but the basic idea of Just Do It is all about customer empathy. Museums typically highlight their artworks as if these are self-generating in creation of interest, and the fact that they have emotive power or social relevance or simply sparkling beauty is thought to be enough. You're saying, no, you got it backwards. You have to think about the audience's drive and determination to connect with those artworks rather than profiling the artworks themselves first. Is that what I'm getting? I think that's absolutely true. Because yeah, unless there is a specific piece of art that is so compelling that it's going to pull somebody into the museum. It's really about what's the experience I'm going to have in going to the museum and how can I be guided through that experience in a way that makes me want to come back. Larry put on a show around the Rodin collection at the NCMA where he brought in dancers to bring to life the statues. And I thought it was just a really immersive experience that allowed us to stand among the sculptures and watch each other, watch the dancers. It was more than the piece of art. It was a real understanding that our senses were there to be engaged. That really was mm -hmm. about understanding how to make us feel, which I think is a really mm -hmm. critical part of the museum. And that's empathy. What about just pure identification? In other words, a lot of people look at art collections, and if they don't see themselves reflected in the artwork, they don't feel necessarily a sense of urgency to attend. And I'm curious what campaigns that have been effective at simply eliciting identification with the service or product rather than empathy. Yeah, now there's a professor and researcher and author in Australia named Byron Sharp who wrote a book called How Brands Grow, which I use as part of the core of the class I teach at Duke. And there are two concepts that are really central to his thinking. And the first to this question is the idea that a brand's role is to create mental and physical availability, which in shorthand means doing things that make it easy to be noticed. And secondly, the development of distinctive brand assets, which include things like logos and colors, and in the case of Coke, the bottle shape, and of course, advertising ideas. He would say that those things, more than anything about the differences between one brand or another, or in this case, the differences between one museum or another, particularly if they have somewhat similar collections, those are really the important things. 
there are very few product categories where the products themselves are meaningfully differentiated. And where there are differences, they are usually too minor to make the difference. We tend to gravitate to brands that reflect a real deep understanding of what we really want from the category. So the job becomes being seen as the authority in the category and not just functionally different from the rest. I think Geico is a terrific mm. example of what you're talking about here. Yes, they talk about 15 minutes could save you 15%, but at the core of what they're saying there is, we know that you know that insurance is not that interesting. And <laughs> so we're going to boil it down to its essence, which is give us a call and we'll save you some money. Now, they could, in fact, drive us totally bonkers by saying that over and over again with the $2 billion a year they spend in media behind those seven words. But instead, what they do is they keep that very simple thing at the core and then find 10 or 15 different ways to execute that idea, whether it's a caveman or a camel or, or a gecko. They keep on keeping us engaged in the conversation even though the conversation always sums up with a very simple thing. So I think that's maybe one of those brilliant mm -hmm. examples of very simply, oh yeah, they're mm -hmm. the ones that save me the money. Travelocity, we created the Travelocity Gnome. Travelocity was the first online travel company. They were uh, overtaken by Expedia when we were asked to work with them. And we really went back and we said, okay, what is it about online travel? And it, we concluded that it wasn't about being in the cheap tickets business. It was about understanding that when people buy travel, what they really want is a great travel experience. And we picked the gnome as a representative of that. You may remember um, the movie Amelie, which mm -hmm. involved gnome napping. And there was the gnome liberation front in Europe where people literally would take gnomes out of their neighbor's yards <laughs> um, on trips and then take pictures and send them back in kind of where's Waldo kind of fashion. We realized that for the people we were talking about, this goes back to, um, you know, different segments of people. Uh, we'd identified a group of people we called the insiders who, you know, this is 2004. So transacting on the web was still a bit of a new thing. So these were people who were web savvy, but they were people who put travel above anything else. If they had one more dollar of, of disposable income, they would spend it on travel. And we knew that they were aware of this crazy thing called gnome napping. And so we knew that when we positioned the gnome as Travelocity's expression of being in the great travel experiences business, not in the great cheap tickets business, they would get that. And we knew that everybody else would look at this gnome and say, I have no idea what this gnome is about, but it's certainly different than anything else that's going on in travel. <laughs> it was dramatic in how quickly it turned around the fortunes of that brand to the point where, you know, they sold the company to private equity four years later for almost $6 billion. You know, I think that's just another great example of by identifying your brand with the things that are important to people in the category you have a chance of really standing out. Is that some of what you teach your students at Duke? Give us a sense of what kind of skills and training the emerging talents in the field need to have. That's actually one of the most central parts of what I teach. The course I call I teach is called Customer Empathy, oddly enough, and Brand Experience Design. And it's really kind of intended to be a direct line from the social sciences to marketing. I am teaching them about things, you know, like understanding how to get at what makes people tick, the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes. We look a lot at behavioral economics and 
uh, just all the different ways uh, in which we've learned how people make decisions. But in terms of actual life skills, we are focused on trying to get them to learn how to think critically, to be able to look at both sides of an issue and be proponents and detractors of each side so that they can really look at all the details of an issue. It's a discussion-focused class, so it's very much about helping them develop the willingness to step up and be part of the debate and conversation and not sit in the background. In a world that doesn't do enough of this, I think, anymore, there's a real strong focus on developing the ability to communicate and persuade both orally and writing. And I think academic writing tends to be expository. And we all remember the joke of, how do you know an A-plus paper? It's like you can hear the thud when it hits the ground. Business writing has to be direct and it has to be concise, and we spend a lot of time on that as well. I'm sure you study Kaylee McEnany's work at the podium at the White House for good communication. <laughs> I, I will tell you that I try to avoid any exposure to that. But uh... This past fall, Brad, McKinney hosted a panel with the One Club for Creativity titled How Young Gifted Black Creatives Can Break Into the Ad Industry. Museums have the opposite problem, convincing black students to be interested in working in museums. What could be learned from the challenges of attracting black talent in your field that could be helpful to museums? I actually think we have the same problem as museums have. It uh, strikes me that people of color are disproportionate contributors to the content of the arts and culture and entertainment in our world but clearly underrepresented in roles that deal with our access to and experience of those contributions. And that's an imbalance that I think we have to break. The One Club panel was rather optimistically named. It certainly spoke to five or six people of color who had wanted to be in advertising and had found their way in. But it is still more of an issue for us to attract people to our industry. And I think in part it's because we haven't, as an industry, been known for trying that hard. And, uh, you know, if there's anything that I've learned along the way is if you want to make a change and you want to change the structure of your company and attract people of color, it has to start at the top. Without a clear mandate from the board and from the CEO, there are just too many forces against change. I'm really proud of how McKinney has taken up the challenge in a very visible and transparent way. Uh, if you go to our website, you'll see our statement of commitment. We've reached out to uh, North Carolina Central University, one of the historic black universities that's actually headquartered here in Durham, and created a curriculum to teach advertising and expose people to the advertising world. We had them host their ad club at McKinney every month. So reaching out to the community in an authentic way can make a big difference. We're a member of a group called 600 and Rising, which is an industry association formed to promote the attraction of black talent into our industry. Uh, just yesterday, we announced internally the hiring of an executive director for diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. So this is something that cannot be taken lightly if you want to make a change because there are just too many forces against it. And oddly enough, this whole idea of empathy actually kind of gets in the way because those of us in the advertising business anyway believe that we are very empathetic creatures who really know how to understand <laughs> other people. But I can assure you that the traditional leadership of advertising agencies has at best a superficial understanding of the real experience of living as a person of color. And until you actually have 
people in prominent roles like this executive director that we've just named, it's very difficult to be taken seriously as somebody who cares about understanding what has to happen for Black talent to be successful and grow. You probably noticed the business roundtable, the group of you know, the mm-hmm. largest companies in the country shifting their focus from Milton Friedman's insistence on the purpose of the company being to make money for shareholders to a much broader view of stakeholder capitalism. Just in the last couple of weeks, the Nasdaq stock market has sought permission from the SEC to force all companies that list on the Nasdaq to have at least one board member of color. All of those things in turn affect how our clients think about this issue and to the extent that many of our clients are prominently represented on the business roundtable. So, you know, they are taking very seriously the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that necessarily filters down. So to the extent there are forces outside of the museum environment that can be brought to bear in your world, those would be helpful as well. Brad, superficially, art and advertising are cousins. They're both often built on storytelling. But normally, an ad campaign is only deemed successful if it attracts eyeballs and opens wallets, while great works of art can be cloistered and unsold and still be great. Can you cite an example of a campaign you're proud of that didn't go viral? Uh, The simple answer is no. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think I might make a a distinction between viral and successful. There are certainly Mm -hmm. successful campaigns, which by virtue of our spending money buying media to put them out in the world, have done great things for brands. The challenge we have, and I'm sure you've faced this in running museums, you know, you want to create things that are viral, but there's no such thing as a viral video. There's only a video that goes viral. And yes, there are things you can do, but sometimes it's just a matter of lightning striking. You know, one of the great viral moments of the past few years was the video, the $5,000 video shot by the CEO of Dollar Shave Club that launched that brand. And I think it was a little over 20 million views in the first few days at a point (laughs) when social media was not nearly as developed as it is now. That was almost 10 years ago. Interestingly, they haven't done anything, anything Mm -hmm. since that first commercial that has garnered even a quarter as many online views. So they've been extremely successful. They've been true to the message that was in that video. And they probably would never have gotten to be a company that Unilever was willing to pay a billion dollars to acquire if they hadn't had that viral success. But they've managed to remain relevant and successful even without viral stuff. On the other hand, though, some of my favorite viral work hasn't been successful at all because it was viral for the wrong reasons. One of my absolute (laughs) favorite campaigns ever, and you may remember this, was the Got Milk campaign in the early 90s. It was created mm-hmm. by the uh, Goodby Agency. And it focused on the whole idea of what happens if you're out of milk. It was the milk deprivation strategy. There was, for example, a, a young collector of Aaron Burr memorabilia who is mm-hmm. sitting there eating a peanut butter sandwich, listening to the radio, when all of a sudden there's a contest that says, okay, we're going to call now and award $10,000 to the first person who can tell us who killed Alexander Hamilton? And he's looking around the room at all of his memorabilia and the phone rings. And he has a peanut butter sandwich bite in his mouth. And he has no milk to wash it away. 
And so he goes, brr, brr, brr. <laughs> and they can't hear him and they hang up. So, I mean, it's like the, right. the whole campaign was hilarious, but unfortunately it didn't do anything because it didn't get at the real reasons why people weren't drinking as much milk. Let me try something on you about unsuccessful. So ESPN is among your clients and yeah. Americans consume sports through media much more than in person. More people attend museums than sporting events. So why then are art and art history such a hard sell on television? They don't get on television. They're not programmed. There's, there's very little to speak of, of art and art history on TV. Well, I think the experiences are so different. So many sporting events today are actually more fun to watch on TV than in person. And I think the media has done a great job of creating great viewer experiences. If I'm going to watch golf, I would rather watch it on TV where you can see the ball flight, where you can actually sit in the comfort of your living room, go to the refrigerator when you want to, and not have to walk around a golf course for, for two or three hours. You know, I think that, but Brad, that's the way I feel about museums. I would yeah. much rather be able to get a cup of coffee and <laughs> look at an artwork on a screen. <laughs> well, no, but seriously, why? <laughs> but it's, they, it's not an either or, surely. In other words, people do like going to stadiums and if, sure. in the future, eventually. But they spend far more time obsessing on screens. And art is never on screens, pretty much no, ever. That's true. But I, you know, I think, I think there are, again, there's some other dynamics at play too. And, you know, when we're watching sports, you know, we're picking sides, we're looking for winners and losers. We're watching something that is, except for the highlight reel, truly ephemeral, but viewing art to me is much more intimate and personal. I want to see the texture on a painting. I want to stand as close as I want to and as far away as I want to. I want to see it under different experience of lighting and sound. And frankly, I may want to do it by myself rather than with other people, which I guess you can do with TV as well. But I do remember standing in the Rothko room at the Tate for about an hour, walking up to each of the paintings, walking away, you know, sitting down on the bench. There was something immersive about that that I just don't think you can capture on TV the same way. Well, I'm hoping your students are going to figure it out because we need more presence of the visual arts in popular culture and it just ain't happening. But let's talk about this, this next semester. Thank you. And I'd be happy to be a guest speaker. I'm inviting myself. There so, Brad, turning to consumer brands, your Sherwin-Williams campaign was among the most spectacular use of robotics and camera work I've ever seen. Have any artists inquired about the technical resources you brought to bear? And if not, I'd be happy to make an introduction. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you very much for that compliment. It's among my favorite work as well. It's just stunning. And as you know, if you go to our, into the McKinney website, you can, can see the work there. In our business, we rely on third-party production resources um, to help bring our ideas to life in the same way that a movie producer might bring in ILM for part of the visual aspects of the film. The company that we hired for that Sherwin-Williams Emerald Paint campaign is a company called Psyop. Working with them, we injected paint into 400-gallon water-filled tanks and then shot different colors at each other and, and followed the motion around and captured the collision of the colors. You know, PSYOP is a great resource for that. So if you have deep-pocketed artists who are looking for help replicating that, they should reach out to them. And if you've ever seen the Sherwin-Williams TV campaign, which has beautiful imagery that's created out of Sherwin-Williams paint chips, that was done by a company called Buck. So it's all part of an ecosystem of 
production resources that we tap into to make our ideas more exciting. And you've been long involved in using digital platforms. You were among the first in your field. How are you coping with the fact that networks and cable are being challenged by streaming content in respect to getting people to watch advertising? Yeah, sure. The um, interesting thing about our early forays into digital is it was really before there was a significant amount of digital advertising. And what we Mm -hmm. were doing then really was less about buying ad units than it was about creating what would later become known as influencer and social media. We were creating online experiences that we were hoping committed parties of online users like online gamers would find and spread. Those were all really interesting events. And in the case of something like the program we did in 2004 for Audi called The Art of the Heist, we managed by doing that to keep 500,000 luxury car intenders engaged in an online choose-your-own-adventure kind of program for literally 90 days. Now, 500,000 people is a lot of people when you're selling a luxury car. It's not a lot of people when you're selling toothpaste. So eventually, the ad ecosystem was created and we participate in it like everybody else. The fact is, any real estate online that can become an ad unit will become an ad unit. A market will be created to buy and sell that space. And our job from a media standpoint is just to follow where people go and deliver the most powerful possible ad experiences in those environments. Yes, streaming does tend to create some challenges, but it's also part of the reason why the value of live major events like the Super Bowl continues to grow. You know, you think about the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, March Madness. They are among a few convening moments in our culture where we all gather together and have a shared experience all at the same time. 73 million people saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, and that was 41% of all available TV viewers. Well, that sounds impressive until you realize that with only three networks, the average show got 33% of all available TV viewers. (laughs) Today, the only way that you can do that in our fractured media world is on something like the Super Bowl. That's one of the reasons why Super Bowl inventory continues to get sold out early and the prices go up about as fast as college tuition. And we just have to focus on those things. But, you know, the good news is we have so many different ways of reaching people today and different ways of connecting with them. All of the science says that the more different places you are, the more each of the places you are tends to work better. It's more complex, but it's not any harder. You make me think next month, we're going to have the two popes in Avignon. We're going to have the Biden swearing in, and we're going to have the Trump show in Florida. And half of America can watch one and half can watch the other. So we'll reach the entire population that way. And we hope that that is the outcome, depending on what our friends at the Supreme Court do. (laughs) Brad, thank you for making time to be with me today on Artscoping and opening up a little bit of this amazing world you've inhabited for all these years. I'm very grateful to you. I couldn't have enjoyed it more. Thank you, Max. We've been speaking today with Brad Brinegar, chairman of McKinney. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.